Hi, welcome to Living Water Bible Fellowship's audio sermons. It's our prayer and hope that you'll be encouraged and uplifted by the preaching of God's Word. Stick around after the message to hear more about how to contact us. What, what, what does it mean that Jesus came? For the last month, we've been talking incarnation. Incarnation is an incredibly deep subject. It took the, the early church some 450 years to parse out the meaning, to search the scriptures, to understand the meaning, to, to put it together. What does it mean that God became man without ceasing to be God? What, what are the, what, what are the uh, facets of that? What, what are the definitions of that? What are the boundaries of that? So, so many times through church history, uh, the people have got it wrong. Early in the church, the, the idea was that uh, maybe Jesus was just uh, adopted as the Messiah. He was a man that did great. He kept the law perfectly. And so God said, you're the Messiah because you've proven yourself. And that, that, that was rejected. Early in the church, the Gnosticism and uh, uh, Docetism, the idea that it appears, it seems to be, there's a claim that Jesus just appeared to be a man, that he was truly divine, but he just appeared. He was like this phantom that came to earth. Uh, so that was rejected. And so various ways, uh, the church has, has always struggled, or there's been movements within the church that have always struggled to get the incarnation right. Uh, some, some movements said that Jesus was the highest created being, created above all things, but he wasn't divine. The Arianism uh, came about, and that was rejected. Um, other movements said that God was... Uh, the, the, the incarnation, the Christ child, the, the man Jesus, he, he was fully God, but less than fully man. That There was a, a maybe 75% God or 25% man or something, and, and that was rejected. Uh, so many different, different perspectives uh, that have risen up about Jesus, interpretations of Jesus that had to be set aside because of misunderstanding. Uh, another idea that came forth at one point was that there was not just two natures in, in Jesus, the one person, but there was two persons uh, that were in conflict with one another, that they were divided, and that had to be rejected. Um, so, so many different ways of thinking about the incarnation and what it means that he's fully God and fully man. Um, there's, there's a number of others in church history, but the Orthodox definition, what they came up with after many years of councils and parsing it out and deciding on on what the scriptures were truly saying, and a fully God, fully man, not 75% man or 25% God or the other way around. Not this strange mixture of God and man where there's this hybrid or this strange new being that comes about, but 100% God, 100% man, the, the two natures, two wills that come together united in one person. Okay, and, and so we, we can't put that together in our minds perhaps, but that's what we've been talking about the last month, and we've worshipped God for what He's done in, in doing that and coming. Uh, the question remains sometimes in people's minds after, after Christmas, uh, okay, we celebrated Jesus, we celebrated the baby Jesus, and why? What, what was the outcomes? What was the purpose of the incarnation? And I'd like us to dive into that today, uh, wrestle with that question, and, and look into that question a bit, because it's so important. You celebrated Christmas, but the so what is still the so what? What's the purpose? I hope you're not worshiping the baby Jesus. 
remember my, uh, one of my relatives, he'd, he'd always thank the baby Jesus at his prayers. I was like, oh, uh, you're, you're, not, you're not on the right track there, buddy. You know? uh, and, so, and so we, what was the purpose of the incarnation, God becoming man without ceasing to be God? What was the outcome that God wanted to see in your life and my life? Let's look at that this morning. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 5. Uh, I'm not going to uh, sugarcoat this to you, uh, for you today, uh, uh, make it easy. This is a, a chunky monkey, it's, uh, the cookies are on the top shelf, they're not easy to reach, and you're going to have to pay attention uh, today. Um, even with all your overindulgence of eating yesterday, and you're tired, and man, but let's uh, look at the Word of God and hear what he has to say to us about purpose of incarnation. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let's go through verse 8 in this first segment. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that you care for him. You made him a little for a little while lower than the angels. But you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And pause there. So we have, uh, there's, there's a lot of content in this, this, these, these short verses, uh, but we realize we're entering into a conversation, we're entering into a teaching here. And we realize right away that uh, he's been talking about the world to come. We, as Christians, uh, the scriptures have taught us, and we've taken it as our hope. We look forward to it in joy of the world to come. There is a, a new world, a, a new heavenly world that's coming, that as believers, sons and daughters of God who have been redeemed and bought with the Lamb's blood, we have a share in that inheritance. Uh, the, the new world, the, the new age, the, the world that is not now, that has started to come with Jesus' arrival, His coming, the kingdom has come, but it's not fully here yet. Uh, the thing, kingdom of God is at hand, the, the kingdom of God is near. When Jesus comes, there's, there's going to be changes in the world, a new world. Now whether this world is going to be renewed and, and uh, restarted in some way, or if there's going to be a new earth completely, that's up for debate. But a new world's at hand. And, and so he, uh, he starts this, this, this entry into what we're talking about today, the incarnation and its purpose. He, he's, he started, he's continuing conversation, saying, it doesn't belong to the angels, this world, the angels aren't going to rule it. The angels aren't going to be in control. And, and why does he talk about angels? Well, if you were here last week, we, we started in chapter 1, and, and you realize uh, the, the, the letter was written to a group of, the title is Hebrews, it's written to Jewish Christians, a small house church, that uh, had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Someone was preaching the gospel to them. Someone was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to this, this group of Jewish people, and and a number of them turned to the Lord. They responded to the good news and they confessed Jesus as their Savior and Lord. They, 
they converted to Jesus Christ um, as their sovereign. And so uh, what's happened through the years, just to bring you up to speed, is, is through the years of persecution and suffering and trial, because Jesus was their Lord, they, they were under the gun. They, they, they went through so much and so many hard times. They were attacked because they were Christians. They were attacked because they, they didn't stick with the Judaism. They were attacked because they didn't go the pagan ways. And, and so when this letter is written to these people, they're, they're tired. They're exhausted. They're losing their focus. And, and the fear is that the author has, uh, that he's writing to them about, is that they're drifting away from their Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you drift away. Don't you lose your hope. Don't you give up your, your, your steadfast faith in the Lord Jesus. Keep your trust in Him. Keep grounded in Him. And there's so many exhortations through the text uh, about that. Uh, and so one of his, his uh, ways of proceeding logically and rationally to these people is, is he understands that the Judaism that they knew, the Hellenistic, the Greek kind of style of Judaism they are a part of, they reverenced angels. They, they lifted angels up as maybe super guides alongside the Word of God. Uh, that's one side of it. But they all, he also, as we talked about last week, there was a belief uh, among the Judaism of the day, and it's a tradition that's carried on into, into the New Testament even, is, is that the angels were the ones who brought the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. The angels were the ones who delivered the law. Okay? They were the messengers. And so the argument that the, the author starts with, uh, uh, that we are encountering still here in, in chapter 2, is, is that, man, the angels are so great, the angels are so awesome, but he has to counter that and say, if, with the idea that they're going back to Judaism and the angels and, and the law, and they're, they're seeing the law as so important, and it's a great revelation, and, and so he uses the angels as kind of a, a symbol of, of the old ways, don't go back to the angels. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to the old ways. And so in chapter 1, going to chapter 2, he says, Jesus is so much more supreme. Jesus is the final word. He's the final revelation. He's the completion of the Torah. He's the completion of the law. He's the end of the law, the fulfillment of the law. He's the, he's the, the, the one who made the law. He's the lawgiver. In, in so many ways, he's trying to get out the idea that Jesus, you don't drift from Jesus. The gift that was given in Jesus Christ your faith in, in what He's accomplished, you don't leave Him. There, there's nothing higher. There's nothing greater. Uh, there's nothing that's above Him. And so this is a continuation. <sighs> What's the purpose of the incarnation? Uh, he, he's trying to keep them in the faith. Uh, he's trying to persuade them. Don't you give up your focus on Jesus Christ. Keep your trust and faith in Him. But, but, but he starts off in verse 5. It's not to the angels, Okay? And so he goes into verse 6. He says, it's been testified somewhere, speaking of the world and who runs it and who owns it and who controls it. It's been testified somewhere, verse 6, and he's quoting Psalm 8 here. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So, so uh, he, the psalmist is saying, man, when I look at your creation, Yahweh, oh, Jehovah, when I look at your creation, it's so great, the stars, the, you know, what we call the stars and the, and the planets and, and the creation and all the wonder of the world. How come you're so focused on man? How come you're so intent on, on caring about mankind? What are we compared to this great, glorious creation you made? The Son of Man that you care for Him, Son of Man meaning, meaning us. You made Him a little lower 
uh, for a while than the angels. And, and that, that's not a put down. In, in Psalm 8, it's like the creation is so grand and so great, and, and humans in, in the original creation were made with, in, 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 by the will of God to image God, to reflect God, and they were raised up about, above all else of creation. And so when he compares humans, us, to angels, it's a compliment. The, the psalmist is saying, man, you, you've made us just a little bit lower than the angels, and that's incredible. Why were you doing that? Uh, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Uh, and so this is talking about humanity in, in Psalm 8, and the psalmist is reflecting on, uh, you've, you've, you've given humanity this, this worth. You, you, you think humanity is so special and so important. You've given humanity this dignity, created with dignity. You've crowned humanity with glory and honor. And, and, and really, in the original creation, you've subjected everything under him. And, and so, uh, what, what does that mean? Psalm 8, as, as we dive a little bit deeper, as we peel back the layers a little bit more, is a reflection on Genesis chapter 1. So if you turn back to me with, with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And if the turkey from yesterday is kicking in, you can get up and walk around and do what you need to do to stay awake. But look at chapter 1, verse 26. Okay, so Psalm 8's like, man, you've made humanity in, in incredible ways and, and you've put the world under humanity's feet. How incredible. But So he's thinking about Psalm cha uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Let me read that. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, which is incredible. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so there's a double uh, or repetition there to drive home the point. In the original creation, humanity was given dominion, God's governor, as it were, God's vice regents. We were placed on the earth. A created purpose was for us to manage God's, God's world. We, we were created as stewards to steward God's world to His glory, to bring out the beauty of the world, to bring out the order and structure that God had placed in potential, to bring it to His worship. You know, to develop it. And we see farmers developing fields and, and uh, people making instruments and, and people coming you know, up with, with, with all kinds of, of uh, created things. That we, The potential was there, the minerals were there, the, the elements were there, and we, we put things together. And in some ways, we've been very successful in stewarding what God has given us. And of course, in other ways, we've been horrible at it. Okay? Uh, so, so we go back to Hebrews chapter 2. And the psalmist is saying, it's not the angels, and the author of Hebrews is saying, it's not the angels that the world is to come has been subjected. It's to somebody else. Now, who is it? He's talking about humanity in Psalm 8. And then you jump down at the, at the next part of verse 8, after he says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, talking about humanity, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Okay, and so this is, this is a reflection on the fall. 
Okay, the original creation, the world that was, was made uh, perfectly. You know, God, when God created man, very good. Very good. It's everything that God wanted, His plan, His dreams, His purposes for creation. Very good. Then what happened? Sin came into the world, and what happened? Death came into the world. So right now, God's original creation, where He had humanity in a certain role of steward, of having dominion, having control of the earth, right now we don't see it because we've fallen. <laughs> we, 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 we're, we're, we're death-bound people. We aren't in control. We, chaos reigns. You know, and we see in our sinfulness and our brokenness how we've abused the earth and taken advantage of the earth in so many ways, and we've used it selfishly and self-centeredly instead of glorifying God with the resources uh, that He's given us and in, in honoring Him. Uh, and so, and so we, we start this passage by looking at, uh, we're leading into the question of why the Incarnation? Why did Jesus come, and, and what was the purpose He wanted to see? Uh, he's talking about the world to come, so the purpose that God wanted to see in some fashion is tied to what He wants to see in the world to come. And so right now, the world as God designed it is out of order, out of harmony, is what the author is saying. But then we go to verse 9. Read with me verses 9 through 10. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Man, the author's layered a bunch of ideas and themes in there. Well, let me try to unpack the argument for you, try to help you understand what he's trying to say so we'll understand the significance of Jesus' incarnation. We have seen the world in chaos. We've seen it in our own lives, the brokenness of our decisions, the evil of our decisions sometimes, how we treated people, how people have treated us, how things fall apart so easily, how things aren't in order or harmony. Okay, so we see humanity in a broken state. But the author says, but guess what? Now we see Jesus. Jesus has come. And for a little while, He was made a little lower than the angels. For a little while, He became a man. The incarnation is what He's talking about here. For a little while, He became a man, and, and, and what did He do? He, he became a man to taste death for everyone. To taste death. He, 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 he came as a baby, born in a manger, took on flesh, lived you know, some 33 years to die for you and for me. It's an, it's an incredible thing. It, 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 but, but what was the end result of that? Okay, so He died for us, so what? He, he, he died for you, what, what does that entail? What, what does that mean? What's the outcome of that? It was by the grace of God, that what it says in verse 9, uh, God, it, God had His providence in that, His sovereignty in that, God was choosing that. It was, it was a decision by the Trinity to accomplish that, to taste death, to die for us. But in verse 10 it says, it was fitting that He, 
Yahweh, the Father, who in, in other passages we've seen that, that Jesus made the world and it was for him. Uh, here, the, the Father, it, it says the same thing about the Father. He, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in his plan of bringing sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, uh, uh, I, I don't want to get this out of sequence, and it, it can be confusing all that he's saying here, but God sent Jesus to die to bring sons and daughters to glory. In the context, what is the glory that he's talking about? When it says uh, in different places that we will be glorified, what's that, what's that referring to? It refers to ultimately our resurrection and the life that we have in the new world. To bring many sons to glory, uh, there's, there's different, uh, so many different avenues you could chase this rabbit down. But remember where it says, one day we will judge angels, and one day we will reign with Christ. You start unpacking all, all the, what that means, it, it's, it's super significant and, and incredible, the scope of what God has planned for humanity. And, and just to cut to the chase here, is that God is bringing a new world, and, and, and He's saying that it's not going to be angels that run that world. It's going to be God's people whom He has redeemed. He's going to raise you if you're in Christ, if you've confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've been born again. He has a purpose for you, a plan for you, when, when, like Chad talked about the inheritance that we're going to have. It's so much bigger and grander than we, we think sometimes or we imagine sometimes. God is going to restore His original plan for humanity, it wasn't by accident that he made us very good. It wasn't for nothing that he had a, a certain order and sequence about humanity ruling and having dominion. Sin, the devil is not going to win. Evil is not going to sidetrack God's ultimate plan. In the new world, humanity, the sons and daughters that he's redeemed, that he's going to bring to glory, they are going to have dominion again. Now, who's the ultimate owner? Of course, God is. Who's the ultimate king? Of course, Jesus is. But just like in the original creation, there's going to be a delegated authority to you, O Christian. Your, uh, your worldview, if, if this is all there is for you, is this life, your worldview, your understanding of reality is way too small. If you understand, if, if you look at this life as all there is, or if, if you're putting all your chips on what you're experiencing in this life, or, or your hope is, is abiding just in the here and now, you're missing the boat. Lift up your eyes to what God has revealed about your future and about your eternity. Uh, some, some authors say this is your destiny. The God who chose you from eternity past has already planned for you something that is much grander and greater than what you're experiencing now, a greater responsibility and a greater purpose that will last forever, that counts for something that matters. And what does it mean to manage God's new world? We will see. What does it all entail upon the new earth? As we've risen from the dead, as we've had these glorified bodies, and what does it mean to be stewards of what God is going to remake this, this earth or, or, or make anew the new earth? As we dwell, as Revelation tells us, in the new Jerusalem, uh, let your minds go crazy there. Uh, the responsibility as we look back 
is going to be our responsibility again. Now, how was this accomplished? Why was this accomplished? What, what's going on here? Jesus was made man so that he could die for us. And, and the plot thickens, or the, the, the understanding of this thickens, when it says uh, God should make the founder of their salvation, that's, that's us, the, the ones who are going to run the new world, uh, the, the founders of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Uh, the founder of our salvation is Jesus Christ. Uh, we uh, are saved only because of what Jesus did. We haven't earned it. We haven't deserved it. We haven't jumped through enough religious hoops to get uh, anything from God or make Him give us salvation. Jesus earned it through His death and His death alone. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can be freed of our debt of sin, our debt of wickedness. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus paid it all. And He achieved that on the cross, shedding His blood for the remission of our sins. Uh, so, uh, Jesus, what, what, did, what happened to Him? How, how could He become the sin-bearer we needed? How could He become the substitute we needed? How could He become the Savior we needed? Well, it says he was perfected through suffering. That's a rather intriguing idea, isn't it? I thought Jesus was perfect. And I say to you, he was and he is and he always will be. We looked pretty hard at that the last four weeks as we looked at John 1 and and. and Colossians 1 and, and Hebrews 1, e even let me just repeat just a few lines from Hebrews 1 that we looked at last week, just to show you how perfect he was. In these last days, uh, this is chapter 1, Hebrews, verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So Jesus is the owner of all things that, that are and that will be, through whom also he created the world. Jesus was the maker of the world, the, the Trinity was was all involved in that. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And so, he, he, He's the exact representation of God. He's the divine image that the fullness of God was in Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Uh, you know, He is perfect, morally perfect. In every way you can think of, He's perfect. He, he is all, he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. You know, he, there's, he lacks nothing. The only thing He lacks is sin. He's the perfect, uh, eternal God who's become the perfect man. But, but the, perf the perfect man, what does that mean? Perfected through suffering. Oh. So uh, the idea there is that to become a priest, to become somebody that fulfills a role, you have to go through something. You have to be perfected is something that you go through a process. You go through a development. You, you arrive at some point. Uh, when it says sufferings, uh, so Jesus is 33 years. For all of his life, Jesus was tested. You know, we read about Jesus' uh, testing in the wilderness by the devil, and we think, well, that was a, you know, 40 days, whatever. I, I could, yeah, yeah, no, you couldn't. Um, um, so we, we think, well, that's just 40 days, but you realize that the devil was coming after Jesus for 30 plus years. 
And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I give in to temptation. When desire grows and temptation comes, and, and, and I, I fall sometimes, you know, in different ways in terms of sin. But, but you know, sometimes when that temptation grows, I, I give in to it and I'm not tempted anymore. But you realize how hard it was for Jesus uh, and, and you see the shaping and the molding and the development of Jesus in that he never gave in. Sometimes we're, we're tempted for two or three days to, to gossip about somebody or, or, or to attack somebody or to, you know, lust or something like that, right? And, and maybe we give in. Jesus never gave in. And so the temptation continued to build. The, 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 the attack of the enemy kept, kept on him. He was tempted in every way. He was tempted in every way. He was tested in every way. And he never failed. He never, never floundered. He never, he never departed from being faithful to God. Always completely obedient and faithful to God through his whole existence. Uh, so what that means is, when it says he's perfected through suffering, through his temptations, trials, through the fallenness of this world, you know, through everything that he faced, the normal temptations, the normal tests that we face, working with people, you know, I imagine, man, he made that table perfect as a carpenter. How many customers sent that back and he was irritated? How many customers said, oh, that's not quite right. That's the measurement you gave me. You, know, you just start thinking of the humanness of Jesus and some of the things he faced and, and he, never, he never sinned. But all these temptations, all these pressures, all these attacks... Right? For, for all of his life. And he proved himself to be the perfect sacrifice. He wasn't the perfect sacrifice until he died because until he died, he could still theoretically sin. And so the sacrifice that was given on the cross, it was proven over time, it was developed over time that he was the right one. He was the accomplishment of it. He was the full Lamb of God because he never sinned. And so that's the idea of he was perfected. He was proven through his life to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross for us. He was always perfect, but in this sense, so he had a moral perfection, you could say, but what we're talking about here is a functional perfection. A perfection that he earned. He stepped into the role as a, as, as a sacrifice, as a priest. He stepped into the role. He proved himself by never giving in to sin to be just what we needed on the cross. And so because of his human nature being perfect, he could be that blemish-free lamb that was sacrificed. And because of his divine nature, the sacrifice that he gave could be applied to a huge number of people. If he was divine, right, uh, his sacrifice is one person's sacrifice, might have covered my sins, but you guys are out of luck. But because he's the divine man, his sacrifice is sufficient for your sins and your sins and your sins and your sins and my sins. Praise God. Because of his sacrifice, because of his death, he was incarnate to go to the cross. Not just to be the baby Jesus that's cute and cuddly and, and, you know, we celebrated Christmas. He came to earth to
to go to a cross, to be laid in the grave, to be raised from the dead. You know, he, he's accomplished it all. He's, he's made it all. And, and the accomplishment of it is because of what he's done by making you right with God, by reconciling you to God, by uh, canceling all your debt that you owe God, because He's made us justified in God's sight, He's made us exactly what God wants us to be positionally. Because He's done all that, God can hand over the keys, so to speak, to the new universe. He can, he, when He raises us from the dead, and you know, there's the millennium kingdom, we, we think that's how it's going to play out, and there's some debate about that, but ultimately in eternity, how the universe is going to be, He's able to give us dominion again because He's made us right again. He's made us pure again. He's, he's cleaned us up. He's sanctified us. And, and that leads into the next uh, little, little phrase here. If, if you, uh, verse 10 again, let me, let me read that. <clears throat> Uh, I'm, yeah, Hebrews. Uh, verse 10, For it is fitting that He, for whom the whole, by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, I, I hope you understand that. And, and because He's made us perfect, uh, the, the, the founder is made perfect, He can become that, that sacrifice that we needed so that He could cleanse us and make us holy and and, and raises up the glory uh, and ultimately our purpose in eternity. But, that, but then verse 11, he, 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 he kind of gets us another angle here. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, who makes people holy, who consecrates people, okay, uh, it makes them right with God. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Uh, some of your translations say one father. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. <clears throat> okay, so, so he, he's moved on in, in incredibly fast warp speed here to some new ideas, but they're all interrelated. Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice that sanctifies. Or it was a sacrifice that was received by the Father that consecrates. Uh, some of your translation says, says makes holy. In and of ourselves, uh, in our relation to God as humans, we are not holy. We, we are not righteous as God is righteous. We're not pure as God is pure. Uh, to have relationship with God, we needed to be made holy, to be sanctified. And, and there's, there's different ways of, in Hebrews even that talks about different modes of sanctification. But I, I will tell you, this is a positional sanctification. Meaning that when God looks at you in Jesus Christ, He sees you as acceptable. He sees you as holy. He sees you set apart for His purposes. Uh, now, practically speaking, the devil can still come and tempt us and we still sin. We have a practical holiness that is continuing to, de continuing to develop. You and I are not perfect practically in, in our day-to-day -day lives. Okay, we, we still stumble, we still fall, we still make bad decisions, but positionally, God has declared you righteous because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice that you've trusted in. 
The work that He's done on your behalf is credited to your account, is given to you, His righteousness is given to you by God's grace. And so when God looks at you in Jesus, through Jesus, He sees a sanctified, consecrated, holy person. That by His grace, He's going to still keep working in us to change us uh, practically into more and more holy people until the day we go to heaven and then we will be totally free of sin and evil. Uh, the sanctifier sanctifies us, and that brings us into... Okay, so back to the question. What is the outcome of incarnation? The outcome of incarnation is to raise sons to glory. Okay? Uh, to, to make you well, all that God has wanted you to be, to forgive you, to, to uh, make you holy. And that results in something uh, rather incredible that uh, in, in verse 11, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. This, this work of Jesus Christ that He came to earth to accomplish has brought about a relationship with the Father, with God, uh, that is so, so deep and so, so intimate and so close that the metaphor, the best way to talk about it is sons and daughters, children of God and brothers and sisters of Jesus. <laughs> now there's danger in using this, this metaphor, this, this analogy, that, that, uh, that is, Jesus is the son, the natural son as it were, on a whole different level. But by the grace of God, when we're adopted sons and daughters, when we're brought into the family, okay, we, we are on, uh, Jesus says, hey, that's my brother, that's my sister, that, that's my family. And, and so uh, in verses 12 through, through 13, there's several quotes that the author is trying to prove to the people that they truly are in the family of God. And Jesus truly considers us brothers and sisters, saying, I'll tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Uh, Jesus is saying, I, I, I preach to the brothers. I sing my, my praises to you, Father, with the brothers. I will put trust in him. I, I, I tell, tell everyone that I put my trust in the. I tell the brothers I put my trust in God. Behold, I and the children God has given me. And so the, the author in Hebrews, Hebrews is such an interesting book in that he uses the word of God to kind of preach to the people. And so he applies these texts to Jesus. And that last one in verse 13, Behold, I and the children God has given me, it's almost as if Jesus looks upon us not simply as brothers and sisters, but as His children that God has given Him. And from the big perspective of things, outside of the metaphor of familial metaphor, there's a unity there and a oneness that we have with our God. God wanted you, in other words, to be in His family. Outside of Jesus Christ, you're not part of His family. Outside of Jesus Christ, you do not belong to God. Outside, outside of Jesus Christ, you will not be in His heaven. Uh, he's sent His Son, His only begotten Son, to go to the cross and die for you to make you part of His family. And the only way that was possible to reconcile you as a sinner to God, to forgive your debt, to make you holy... And the outcome is, is that now that you're in Christ, Jesus says, uh, I'm with them, they're with me, we're family now. And so there is this natural sense with our human family, with our blood family, that we're drawn to one another, and, and how much higher and how much greater is, is the author's understanding 
that we'll be part of an eternal family because of what Jesus has done. Intimate and close beyond what you can imagine. Sometimes we worry, you know, uh, about going to heaven and we're not going to recognize loved ones maybe or we're not going to, you know, that close familial bonds that we have now, maybe we're, you know, get that, get, heaven's going to be greater. <laughs> heaven's going to be better. When you lose your father, when you lose your loved ones, if they're in Christ, you know, there's going to be that intimacy that's still there, but it, it's spread out to a whole family of God that has been redeemed. And Jesus is our God, and, and He says, hey, I'm your brother too. And, and, and so sometimes it, it gets a little fuzzy there, and like, He's not my best bud, as it were. <laughs> He's my God, but, but the familiar uh, sayings are just beautiful, just beautiful. And so he's come to do all that. And if you look at verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And so the incarnation again. Jesus became flesh and blood that, so it's a purpose statement, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And boy, so much to talk about here. So we know from 1 Peter that the devil still this day is like a roaring lion wandering around looking for somebody to devour. Jesus hasn't destroyed the devil in the sense of he no longer exists or something like that. What it means is that he's been made impotent. He's been made powerless by Jesus' work of dying on the cross. Okay, so the devil, where is the devil's power? Where is the devil's authority? Does the devil have the power to kill people? Does the devil have the power to, to wreck people's lives in, in a direct way? We know that from the book of Job, that like the devil had to go and ask permission. You know, the devil was, you know, as Martin Luther says, the devil is God's devil in the sense that he's on a leash. He's under, we don't live in a dualistic world where the devil's here and God's here and they're on the same level. Yahweh, the Lord's here and the devil is his created being that has fallen. Okay, so the devil isn't in all power and control. He can't kill people, as it were, so, so to speak. So, so what, it, what it's saying here is that the, the devil has the, the power, the authority to accuse. Okay, the, the, the devil's authority is to look at lost people and, and to bring their sin before God and, and say to God, you should kill them because they've sinned against you. You should destroy them because they've sinned against you. Because of their wickedness, because of their evil, the devil can go to God and say, hey, here's another sinner that is rebelling against you. So he's the accuser. He, he's the liar. He, he's the deceiver uh, towards us, but he's the accuser before the throne. And so what has Jesus done in destroying the power of the devil? For Christians, for those who have given their life to Jesus Christ, and the bigger part of the argument of Hebrews is don't you drift from Jesus. It'd be catastrophic for you to leave Jesus. Okay? Because what Jesus has done is that he has, by his death on the cross, taken away all your guilt. He's taken away your guilt, which would lead to condemnation. You're no longer condemned. There's no condemnation for him who is in Jesus Christ. Okay? And so if there's no guilt, there's no condemnation, if you've been declared righteous by God, if you've been forgiven by God, the devil has no ground to stand on in accusing you anymore. You're forgiven. The, the judge has said, paid in full. And, and the devil has no authority over you anymore as a Christian. Okay? Now, of course, uh, going back to the practical side of things, the devil can uh, seduce you, as it were, to maybe leave your Jesus. He can tempt you all he wants, and maybe sometimes you give in to that. 
But in terms of his accusatory role in Christians' lives, uh, Jesus has won the victory. Jesus died to deliver you from the power of the devil and the devil's accusations and the judicial outcomes that are so negative and and long-lasting. Not only that, and to deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, Jesus' deliverance extends to our fear of death. Okay, like so maybe some people will say, oh, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of dying. You know, the same way they say, well, I'm, I'm not guilty. God's not mad at me. I, I've never, I, I haven't sinned against God. I'm not going to be condemned. You know, but really you start talking to people that are not saved and, and you, you figure out pretty quick they're pretty, they're pretty afraid of death. You know, and, and they, 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 it terrorizes them and terrifies them and, and it actually is described as a slavery. You know, the fear of death consumes them and controls them and they, so they self-medicate to get away from that fear or they drug or, they, or they, they do whatever to avoid that sense of slavery and that sense of control. But because Jesus was incarnate, because he took on flesh and because he went to that cross, he died in our place and he was raised from the dead, we don't have to fear death any longer. Okay? Because the fear of death is the fear of judgment. The fear of death is the fear of meeting a judge who will condemn us. Now that the judge has said, paid in full, the judge says, you're forgiven. The judge says, you're mine now. It's like you're my family now. You're safe and you're secure. You've been sanctified, consecrated, made holy. We're good to go. You don't have to fear death anymore. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, you know you too will be resurrected from the dead. You have a life of glory ahead. You have a life of honor ahead. You have a life of purpose and meaning in heaven ahead. And don't fear death. To, to fear death means you haven't put your faith in the resurrection. You haven't put your faith in what Jesus has accomplished. He's one. And in Him, you will too. Uh, so the big picture for the Hebrews is, don't you drift from Jesus, don't you give up your hope. Believe in Him, hold on to Him. To, in this section, the incarnation, He's accomplished a lot. Uh, Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful... uh, uh, Verse 16, I'm sorry, I skipped down too far. Surely it's not the angels that he helps. Why why is that? Well, the angels don't die. They're not afraid to die. But Abraham's descendants do. They they die and they've been afraid. So Jesus has come, his incarnation has come to help us overcome our fear of death, overcome our condemnation and our... Our hellish uh, destiny, he's reversed that, uh, changed that to a heavenly destiny because we've been made part of the family of God. Therefore, verse 17, he he had to be made like his brothers. Why the incarnation? He had to be made like people, like you and I, in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he, uh, he became just like us, tempted in every way. He was human, fully human, so that he could be that substitute. Propitiation means that sin is covered. If, you're, if you have received a propitiatory sacrifice, your sin is covered, and the wrath of God is turned away. Jesus has become your sacrifice. You've trusted in Him. You will never have to be judged because your debt has been paid in full, and you never have to face the wrath of God. Jesus was, became incarnate to make that possible in your life. 
You've been forgiven and made free, forgiven and made whole forever. And then verse 18, there's, a, there's another little uh, uh, shift there. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And the rest of the book talks about that high priest role. What's introduced in verse 17 and 18 is what he really wants to talk about. And I'm not going to talk about it today. I've talked too much today. But, but you see what, what, it, what it says there. This Jesus, he became a high priest in your behalf, and he became a sacrifice in your behalf. He's both the priest and the giver. He's both the priest and the sacrifice to bring you to God, to make you right with God, uh, to raise you up to glory. Right? And he's the high priest that you need. He's been tempted in every way that you are right now. He's, he's experienced everything that you have just to the nth degree. He knows what it means to suffer as a human. He knows what it means to suffer and go through trials and tribulations as a person. And so verse 18 is saying, you have that advocate. You have that, that, that Christ that you can go to as a high priest. He knows what you're going through. He can help you. He can minister to you. He can bless you. He can, he can lead you through these things and those things. He's just the priest you need. That's the rest of the preaching of the book of Hebrews. He's the high priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the new covenant. He's everything that you need. Turn to Him. Rely upon Him. Abide in Him. And you'll have life here. And you'll have life in the age to come. Praise God. Thank you so much for listening. The gospel according to the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who was and is the eternal God, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, died for our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead three days later. He then ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits making intercession for his people, and right now he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You can enter into a saving relationship with God, by repenting of your sins and placing your full trust in Jesus' life, his death and resurrection on your behalf. In Christ, you will find forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, peace, hope, and a future. If you would like more information about Christianity or Living Water Bible Fellowship, visit our website at livingwateralamosa.org. God bless.